Go. This is Dennis Ramondi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, our podcast and YouTube channel, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatters.com, and also found these three words, Spirit Matters Talk, uh, on our YouTube channel. And when you go, whether you're listening or watching, please hit the subscribe button and subscribe to us. It doesn't cost anything. And uh, uh, before we start, I want to thank those people that have contributed to uh, allow us to stay on the air. And uh, we encourage others to go to our website or our YouTube channel to get that information. Our guest today, another wonderful guest, David Kuntz. Kuntz and he is a uh, had quite a, quite a life and a lot of uh, uh, different careers. He was 19 years a Catholic priest. Uh, he was a psychotherapist. He is and continues to be an author and speaker and influencer. His latest book right here, uh, The Art of Stopping. And I've got a bunch of questions about the book for you, but uh, we'll start off with Phil. Thank you so very much for taking the time I, to come on, David. I thought it was The Art of Shopping. <laughs> that book is out, yeah. That, that's a different one. Okay. That's uh, David, welcome. Um, Thank you. We always like to begin by having our guests tell our uh, listeners something about their spiritual paths and what brought them to the work they do. In your case, it's uh, particularly interesting. So I'm curious, we're curious, um, what was the initial calling to the priesthood? And then years later, what was the calling out of the priesthood like? Okay, yes. Uh, <clears throat> go back to 1957. I was a student at Georgetown University in Washington. And uh, really trying to figure out what am I going to do with the rest of my life when uh, one of the priests who was on the faculty there said, why don't you become a Jesuit? So I thought, wow, that's an idea. <laughs> well, uh, I, I didn't become a Jesuit, but I did become a priest. And I went to St. Mary's Seminary in Baltimore and six years there and was ordained for the Diocese of Idaho, Boise, Idaho, and spent 20 some years there. The motive, well, I was raised in a very Catholic family, and it, was, it just seemed as though uh, I really was experiencing a call at that time in my young life, and was very enthusiastic, and I enjoyed uh, almost 20 years of priesthood until uh, um, the bottom fell out. <laughs> that's, that's when I did my original stopping, actually. Um, that's when I, uh, I'll maybe talk about that a little bit later, but I did a long period of stopping at that time. And as a result, came back to my post as a pastor in Boise and uh, less than a year later left ministry. Um, when you say the bottom fell out. Midlife crisis, call, call it that. Um, I was finding no meaning in celebrating the liturgy. My vocation just seemed to feel so hollow to me. And I thought, this, this can't be right. Uh, this, this doesn't work. Whereas up to that point, it had been very fulfilling. And I was very, very happy as a priest and uh, appreciative of all the opportunities I had at that time. But it just seemed to stop. Uh, there's probably a lot more that goes into that, but that's really what happened. Now, now uh, I'm curious. I, I would think, and I've talked to other former priests and nuns, uh, and uh, <clears throat> during that period, there's... Sometimes there, there's an uncertainty, but there comes a point when there is a certainty. I want to do something else. I want to move in another direction. But that can be very difficult, very disorienting. 
Uh, there might be desires to go back to something that was secure. You understand you had a, you know, you had a position, you had the security of, you know, a roof over your head and a, a job basically, and then you're moving into a new world. How was that for you and how did you deal with that? Uh, very uh, worrisome. Uh, it was very difficult. I was worrying exactly about the things you mentioned, security, job. Uh, what am I going to do? I'm not educated to do anything else. And uh, so, yes, it was, an, it was probably the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life, really, was to leave, break my vows, uh, do what I thought I would never do. Uh, as Again, that's when I did my original stopping. Yeah, could I, I, just a follow-up question. Sure. You mentioned you broke your vows. I know sometimes a priest requests to no longer be priests or no longer be nuns, and they get permission. And uh, there were certain popes that were very flexible about that, others that weren't. Uh, did you get? Uh, did you go through official channels, or did you just make the decision yourself and, and move in that direction? Uh, the latter. Uh, I did not get laicized. Uh, the, the diocese actually asked me if I wanted to be, and I had to go through quite a rigmarole. And at that time, I thought, no, I don't think I'll do that. So I just took an indefinite leave of absence, and that continues to this day, 40 years mm -hmm. later. Ah. So was there a theological component? Was there anything about your uh, uh, Catholic or Jesuit uh, belief system that was part of what fell out uh, beneath you, or uh, was yes. it a lure to the secular life? That and the other question, before we get on to your book, um, why psychotherapy? Okay, yes, to, to the first question, um, uh, yes, I, I, um, the bottom fell out. I, I, I uh, was definitely uh, uh, unhappy in what I was doing and could see no other thing to do. So that's when I did my stopping. And yes, there was a theological element to it. I found myself unable, mm, unwilling to preach the, the doctrine that the church was offering me. And there were Many, many times what I didn't say in the pulpit was more significant than what I did. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I thought, this, this isn't right. I can't really be a voice for this church at this time. So, yes, theologically, it certainly definitely was. And secondly, I, I would just... Why, what was the uh, pull to become a psychotherapist? Um, well, it seemed to me that one of the most gratifying things in my ministry was the times I did counseling. So it felt like a, a natural move. And so I went back, came down here to the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, got my degree, got licensed, and then spent 20 years as a psychotherapist. Do you still consider yourself a practicing Catholic? Uh, I can't say that, no. I consider my, what I call myself is, is an agnostic Catholic, <laughs> which is sort of a, contradiction in terms I can of, relate that's all right yeah. uh or a, or a catholic naturalist mm -hmm. um I, I i you know being catholic is so in my bones it's really hard to get and there's so many things about the catholic tradition that i do love i love for example the sacramentality of of catholicism i love that that uh, that symbols and acts and, and 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 gestures can be the presence of god uh, so, so I, I really relate to that. So, uh, uh, yeah, agnostic Catholic, that's what I settle on. <laughs> we seem to be having a uh, run of Jesuits, Dennis. <laughs> well, 
Right. We, we had Father uh, James Martin a few uh, weeks ago and Francis Clooney of Harvard recently. Both Jesuits, yeah. Yeah. Yes, both, so. both wonderful Jesuits. <laughs> yeah. And um, so the was was the diocese itself uh, friendly to you when you made the break and the parishioners, how did they react? In various ways. Uh, the majority uh, were, were fine. A couple were not so fine. The diocese uh, was the diocese. Um, I had a very good relationship with my bishop and I admired him greatly. And we were actually close and he was wonderful. Um, I, I can't speak more highly of him. So that was very good. Um, the people, I actually left the parish to go study. So when I was leaving, I wasn't actually leaving the priesthood. I did that after being gone for a couple of years. So it sort of softened the blow. And, and okay, and in your, in your book, and I'll raise it up again, The Art of uh, Stopping. Uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, our listeners, uh, people that haven't read the book, uh, or now our viewers, that, uh, about what, what, what you mean by stopping. And is that something that you got your, the importance of stillness, of stopping? Is that something you got while you were a priest from maybe a, a monastic priest or a, a different traditions within the church? Or is it something you more discovered when you left the priesthood? Um, maybe some of both, but I think it was more what I discovered when I left the priesthood. Mm -hmm. Stopping to, to, to define stopping, it is doing nothing as much as possible for a moment or a month in order to wake up, remember who you are and what you want. So that's the definition of stopping. And it can be for a moment or it can be for a month. When I was leaving the priesthood, of course, I brought with me all of that spirituality. So it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, certainly uh, discovering stopping was not an isolated event. It was a continuation really of my, my uh, priesthood in, in many ways, uh, at least spiritually. So what I did when the bottom fell out, when I had my midlife crisis, I went to the North coast of California and rented a cabin and watched the ocean for a month. Uh, the bishop, God love him, he uh, let me do it. Uh, he said, okay, if you need to do that, then you better do it. So uh, that's what I did. And I, I didn't call it stopping at that time. I did it because I didn't know what else to do. What am I going to do? I was, as you indicated, I was very worried. I was very upset. I was very challenged. Uh, am I going to get through this? Uh, can I keep my values and still change my life? I'm disappointing my parents, my friends, my bishop people, everyone I admire and am close to. So it was a, a big deal. And so I went away and I just, I was still for a month. First time I'd ever done that. Wow. As I came back, I realized what happened during that time is that I sort of scanned my life and said, um, I, I think I can do this. And asked myself questions, looked into my interior life as much as I ever had in my life and came back to my post, spent a few more months there and then uh, finally left ministry. Left, I actually left, went go back to school. Mm -hmm. And after, after two years of that, then I left ministry. 
That's fascinating. Now you said uh, for us to be, uh, to stop for a minute or a month, I assume that everything in between is okay too. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And <it's, laughs> one of the things I like to say about stopping is there's, there's no rules. Uh, there's no rules. You just do nothing as much as you possibly can for as long as you possibly can. And any way that that works for you, that's fine. As long as you're still. And it's based on the assumption that each and every one of us, as, as you both well know, in every spiritual tradition, East and West, the interior life is where it all lives, where it all begins, where it all ends. It's the inner life. So I'm convinced that each of us is born with uh, the wisdom and the knowledge to know what we need to do to live our life the way we, we need to live it. Right. It's so distracted by our world that we don't hear that voice. That's why we need to stop. That's the whole basis for stopping. Otherwise, uh, the purpose of stopping is going so that when we go, the going is where we want to go, where we need to go, where, where, that's in tune with who we are and, that, and with whom we want. Right. For, you know, David, from time immemorial, human beings uh, have had difficulty uh, exploring their interior life because of distraction. And there's right. been more and more distraction, more and more out there. And when you first left the priesthood, that certainly existed. Uh, and what's happened in the last... 10, 20 years, is, I, I don't know exactly when it started, but it's in full bloom now. And that is uh, the distraction of social media, uh, yes, yes. Of, of everyone looking at a phone, no one's self-reflecting anymore uh, that goes on. And, and when you're out there teaching and talking to people, uh, counseling people in terms of the value of stopping, has the uh, ability to stop become more difficult for people because of that? Uh, of what's come into it. It's, all, it's a new element that wasn't there before that, that uh, is part of all that's out there keeping us from going inward. Uh, but do you think it's more so now and, and you have ways to deal with that? Absolutely, yes. Now, I think the internet is, 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 is a huge design to distract. And mm -hmm. there are many people who write about the internet who say that. Uh, it is, its purpose is to distract, mm -hmm. to grab your attention. And to, to fight that, you know, I don't have any magic answers, that's for sure. Uh, but I think the, the, the wise human beings in our culture are going to be the ones that have come up with an answer for that. How can we in some way deal with the reality of social media, which is here to stay, I don't think anybody doubts that, and at the same time, keep our souls alive mm -hmm. and aware, oh, that's a huge question. Uh, I wish I had an answer. Uh, I say the answer is stopping, but that might be a little bit naive um, because it's very, very difficult to get people to stop. Mm -hmm. we're, we're afraid to stop because when we stop, there's nothing there. And when there's nothing there, we get nervous and we look for a distraction and we find them readily. Don't you encourage people to make short stops before they Move on to long stops. Absolutely. Yes. Very good insight. Begin with still points. Uh, let me say that there's a three, three ways. The only rules about stopping are a way of describing the length of time you do it. There are still points, stopovers, and grinding halts. The still point is a very brief time, seconds even, minutes, an hour or so. 
A stopover is a day or two or three or something like that. A grinding halt is a week or more of stopping. And most people don't do a grinding halt in their lifetime. They generally, uh, you know, that happens around transitions, marriages, divorces, moving, uh, moving home, uh, getting a new job, so forth. Uh, but uh, the essence of stopping is built on still points. Those brief moments when you turn your energy in and breathe and remember, just that briefly. And I guarantee that if you put 20, 30, 40, 50 of those moments in your, in your day, you'll come to the end of it more relaxed and more integrated. That's my encouragement for people. Begin with those brief moments. I often tell people, go to a bathroom and lock the door if you can and look in the mirror. Say to yourself what you need to hear. Put a little cold water in your wrists. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath and go back to your life. Mm -hmm. I, I, can also, I can also, I've done this very, very many times while I do seminars and people don't even know I'm doing it because it's so brief, it's so quick. A breath, turning your energy in, and a remembering. You can remember someone you love, you can use an affirmation, you can use a prayer, you can use nothing, just be still. That's, I like to, I like to quote this poem by Rilke that says, we're the stops between the notes in a piece of music. That if we look at life as a piece of music, and that all the things that we do in life are the notes. It's the in-between times that the meaning seeps in, that the meaning jumps in very often. And we need to acknowledge those two froms, from twos in life so that we take advantage of them and not just let them go. Most of us, oh, or I should say, most of the people listening to this program, I'm assuming, uh, we'll get this because mm -hmm. we're spirit matters. And so yeah. people are, you know, if they don't have a regular spiritual practice, they, they recognize the value of stillness and of disconnecting from all the uh, uh, sturm and drang of the, of the world. Mm -hmm. um, you've started to hint at things to do when you stop, because it would seem to me that there's stopping can be, yeah, I'm stopping, I'm watching the news. I'm not doing anything, but I'm, I'm watching the news. Or it could be something uh, perhaps more fruitful. So does it matter what they do when they stop? And what are the uh, guidelines, your guidelines for the most fruitful ways to spend the, the minute or the five minutes or whatever? Yes, it does make a huge difference. And yes, I, I also think that watching the news is not stopping. One participant in, in um, um, one of my seminars said, the closest I come to stopping is playing golf. And I thought, no, <laughs> not for me, not for me. Uh, uh, but it, see, here's the thing. If, that's, if that works for him, fine, go for it, do it. If that's as close as you can get to doing nothing, then that's something. 
but it isn't really stopping. Stopping is really doing nothing as much as possible. Is it possible to do nothing? That's a philosophical question that I can't answer and that many people have tried. And, and, but I don't even think it's that important a question because you do nothing as much as you possibly can. You know, the monkey keeps running and the chatter keeps going and uh, we, we can't stop that. But what we can do is be still enough to notice it. What is your chatter? What are the images that come up for you when there's no distraction, when you are still, when you're in a room alone, sitting in a chair? Here's a challenge for your viewers. Imagine yourself in a room sitting in a chair for 15 minutes and doing absolutely nothing, just sitting there. What's that like for you? What do you think of? And most people, I believe, will think, no, no, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that sounds at all in inviting. It sounds terrible. In two minutes, I'd be up walking around the room looking for something to do. We need, we're, and our culture tells us this over and over again, fill it up, do something. Fill your time, fill your space, mm. fill, fill everything and don't empty it because that's a waste of time. I, uh, David, uh, when you've gone into longer periods of stopping, mm -hmm. full stops, whatever, yes. uh, and, and say for a week or, or more, as you, as you described, yeah. do you notice that um, uh, maybe not immediately, maybe not like this, maybe more like this, you're moving more and more into the interior and the interior is becoming more, more and more dominant over time. And then the second part of the question is when you come out and go back into activity and are focusing outward more, do you feel the more you do that stopping, especially for longer periods of time, the more of that stillness you bring with you into the activity? Absolutely, yes, to the, to the former, yes. Um, stopping is challenging and th there is that there is that flow of, right. of motion of being still and of not being still but yes it does overflow and I don't think it overflows right away uh, in my own experience when I went to the Mendocino coast my, my original stopping um, it was only after I came back and I looked back on my experience of stopping, that I realized what was going on or what wasn't going on at that time. And I realized I was almost like scanning my life. Uh, what is important to me? What are the bottom line questions for me in my life? Um, I didn't think of those questions specifically, but I believe that was exactly what was going on at that time. And it does, it does spill over. And you know, it's like everything, it's a step at a time. Stopping is not something you do once and that's it, it's ongoing. It's a, it's a practice, it's a life, it's a habit. And I'm convinced many people, many spiritual people practice stopping all the time. They just don't call it that, which is, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm just trying to put it in a, in a construct for Western minds, meditation and stopping have a lot in common, but not everything. Um, I, I used to meditate quite a bit, and occasionally still do formally sit, sitting meditation. But stopping is something you can do anytime, anywhere, all the time. And it's just so, on one level, so very, very easy. No rules. In my experience, and I've, I've had uh, psychotherapist friends who 
tell me this, they, they may not have a spiritual orientation, but they always advise their clients when they're caught up in frenetic activity or an argument to pause, to essentially stop and not let things get out of hand. And it was, mm -hmm. so it seems to me that uh, in those most frenetic, you know, highly pressured times or emotionally charged times is when the need to stop is, is most per, uh, profound, but also the hardest because you don't remember to do it because you're caught. And count to 10. You've got it. Yes, You've count to 10, but do you remember to count to 10? Do you remember no. to count to 10? Exactly. So one of the things, hmm? How do you deal with that? How do you help people do that? One of the things I encourage people to do is to find triggers. Find events in your life with which you can associate a, a, a still point. For example, every time you pick up the phone or uh, before you pick up the phone or before you answer the phone, or after you hang it up, or when you go from your desk to the copy machine, or when you go from your, your living room to the bathroom, or, or when you're getting in the car. Uh, in other words, events, moments of your life, uh, just say every time that happens, I'm, and it's still hard to remember. Uh, I'm, I'm still working on that. One of the things I just automatically always do is, is red lights. Uh, I live in the Bay Area and it's very full of traffic and uh, 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 there's lots of red lights. And a red light is a great moment for a still point. You can close your eyes very briefly, turn your energy in, take a deep breath and remember, why am I here? What am I, what am I, what am I doing this? Is this what I still want to do? Who am I? When, when I you did give that west on a hill in San Francisco, and my, <laughs> and my Volkswagen Beetle started to roll backwards. Oh, no. So I, I, I would caution against that. No, that's not. Don't stop your stopping, man. Okay. Right, right. But what about in your in your classes and in the workshops that you give and whatnot? Do you ever have young people, teenagers? Uh, uh, because I would think that uh, um, it's it's most difficult when you're young. But if you can develop that habit, uh, it, it, I've seen kids learn meditation uh, at an early age, and it just it, it, it's easier. It gets built in uh, yes. at a time when they're most distracted. Absolutely. And uh, no, I don't have teenagers in my workshops. There are very, very few. Uh, they're, they're on the other end of the spectrum. They're, right. they're doing. And uh, there's a movement now called Mindfulness Schools, Mindful Schools, which is a wonderful a uh, wonderful group that they go in and teach mindfulness to the children, very young children. Children are masters at stop if you teach them. Uh, even if you watch a young child, I'm sure you both know this, if you watch a young child alone at play, oh my gosh, she's just thinking of everything and playing with imaginary things and right. they're great at it. Uh, but once they get into the teenage, then that, that's 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 really a challenge. And I think the best thing for parents and teachers to do in that case is example. Right, and right. Just be with them, breathe with them. That, that's one of the things I find, especially with right. teachers, if you can. Right. I, I wanted to ask you a follow-up question on that. Yes. Um, I have friends that are involved in a foundation, the David Lynch Foundation, and they bring uh, meditation into schools yeah. and they've had a lot of success with it. I know the mindfulness group does the same sort of thing. Uh, their biggest problem has been religious groups 
saying we don't want you in the schools. It's a religion, you, you know, anything to do with going into in, inward. Not to, I don't think the Catholics uh, church has uh, been one of those groups ever that uh, that's uh, had a problem with it. But a lot of these more fundamentalist uh, Christian groups are just so against it. And it's, it's difficult to understand because you think they would benefit from it. They would. And I agree. It is a problem. I don't know what to do about it, but they're very, very closed. They, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that. But David, uh, as I said before, I think most of our listeners uh, don't need to be convinced right. to stop. But I'll bet, like Dennis and me, uh, many of our listeners have friends and relatives who would benefit a great deal right. from being convinced to stop. So what advice do you have about convincing others right. other than read this book, say, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, when you're in conversation or whatever, and you see somebody who's really stressed out and overworked and overwhelmed, what, how do you convince them? Well, you know, I think the first thing to communicate to anybody is care that, that, that you care. Uh, that you care what's going on in their lives. And the, and the second thing is example. I don't think there's anything that speaks louder than example. Uh, tell your friend of an experience you had stopping. Uh, you know, that, that can be powerful. Uh, and you're right. The, the, the audience to whom I am aiming my message is the most difficult audience to reach because exactly their lives are so full and there's so many options and uh, so many things to do and places to go and things. So, um, you know, it's, it's a hard sell. Mm -hmm. and you're right. The people, many people, especially if they're older and retired, they get this and they can stop. But the people who need it most are the ones that don't hear it. So, yeah. Caring, caring matters most. If you really care, it'll come across and then share an experience that you have with them, maybe. Um, yeah, challenging. David, thank you very much. Uh, Phil, any final questions? Yes, I have a, I have a, the, a kind of theological question for you, David. Mm -hmm. I noticed in the press materials for your book, um, when you were asked, do you have a personal uh, sort of mantra or affirmation, you quoted the famous uh, quote from Julian of Norwich, uh, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Do you have people who say, how do you know that? How can you be so sure of that? Exactly. I certainly what do you do. say? I'm one of them myself. When I say that to myself, <laughs> I say, no, they're not. <laughs> things, things are not well. There's a, the world is a mess. But fake it till you make it. Um, convince yourself that for you at this moment in time, you're here, it's now, you're okay, you care, you're doing your best. That's what I guess it's, it's more of a hopeful mantra than a reality mantra. Because no, you're absolutely right. Things, things, 
things are not well, but but I can't resist it. I guess I can't resist saying, you know, it'll work out. Mm-hmm. I think we have to think that we have to have some right. Or as my grandmother used to say, it could be worse. <laughs> That's an even better way to say it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, David, for being with us and for uh, the good work you do. Uh, let's hold up your book one more time, The Art of Stopping. Uh, we uh, All the, your information and links will be posted on our YouTube channel and on our The Spirit Matters website. Um, any last words for our listeners and viewers? Well, thank you so much for having me. And one of the things to maybe just keep in mind, a little saying that I quoted in my book, and it's a quote from Milan Kundera, the Czech novelist. Slowness is to remembering as speed is to forgetting. Say again. Slowness is to remembering as speed is to forgetting. The slower you go, the more you remember. The more you remember, the more you'll be who you want to be. So keeping that in mind. And the tortoise won the race. And the tortoise won the race. (laughs) (laughs) Ten times. Thank you you both so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right.